Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of This Show is All About You. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. If you want to know more about me, you can check out my website at wordsbyjdk.com. And welcome to episode five for February 8th, 2021. It's the show before Valentine's Day. It's a little bit of a stretch, six more days. I was kind of hoping since I'm talking about romantic love today that would be a little bit closer to that date, but I didn't want to talk about it after, which would have been the day after next week. So I figured today was a good day for it. And uh, this show, again, is uh, a show that's really about how you and me become we and what that means for all of us. And there's a lot of different threads that make you and me we that lead to us. But certainly love is a huge thread, a huge connecting point for all of us, all the different types of it. Last week, we talked about uh, loving oneself. This week, we'll talk about romantic love. We'll talk about friendship next week. And then after that, we'll talk about community. But this is kind of the biggie, right? When we when we hear the word love, oftentimes we give it a, we kind of champion romantic love more so than other ones. And that's that's certainly a product of, of almost two centuries now of increasing emphasis on this around the world. And of course, with Valentine's Day coming up, we're all aware of uh, the commodification, if you will, of it, uh, the, the big holiday uh, that celebrates it. Uh, and, of course, media is full of it, movies, films, uh, books, emphasize this a lot. Uh, but I'm going to take a little bit of a different take on it today. I'm, not, I'm really not going to either lionize or demonize romantic love today. Uh, I'd just like to talk about it in some ways that, uh, that maybe are a little different uh, than what you've heard before. I've titled this show uh, for this week, Voting Myself Off Fantasy Island. Last week, I talked about The Love Boat, so here I am with another 70s slash early 80s TV show reference for you. And uh, if you don't remember that show, uh, Fantasy Island uh, started in 77, ended in 84. It's a story where every week a group of people would fly in an airplane to this island somewhere, and on this island fantasies, whatever they might be, a fantasy for these people could come true. It always came at a price, though, and there was always supposed to be kind of a moral lesson to it by the end of the show. And even though some of the fantasies involved people wanting to be rich, people wanting to get away with murder, most of them had something to do with either wanting to find love or get revenge because of lost love, romantic love. It's this very powerful, powerful thing. And lest we believe that those types of shows are passe now, all I need to mention is The Bachelor slash Bachelorette. That's kind of the more recent version of that fantasy island, right, where people line up for one opportunity or an opportunity uh, to find the so-called love of their life, or as I put it in my article yesterday, finding that true love that they will then never lose, right? That's really what romantic love oftentimes is, how we seem to frame that, is to find that one person or to find that that one expression of romantic love that we will never lose and therefore we will feel safe, we will feel cared about, we'll feel a sense of belonging, that type of thing. In The Bachelor Bachelorette, I actually, I love the, the imagery that they use, the rose, of course, a, such a powerful symbol of love, the rose. And if you haven't watched the show, and I have to confess, I can only watch the show for about five minutes at a time, but I know people that watch it religiously. And the rose is the symbol that, is the sign that you get to go to the next round, that you're chosen, right, to be the person, that you're picked to go to the next level, and maybe eventually you get that final rose and you're the, you're the chosen one, as it were. Um, I'm going to stick with that imagery of the rose for today's discussion because it's a very powerful symbol to me 
too, personally. And, but in a little bit of a different way, and that's come from a little bit of a newer place. And it's there that I centered this week's haiku that will be the framework for today's show. And here's the haiku for today, and this is how I really want to look at romantic love. A rose's beauty is not determined by how close I get to it. Try that again. A rose's beauty is not determined by how close I get to it. And this is sort of what that means, and I'll tell you where this idea came from. It's a personal story of mine. A rose's beauty, or this could be a person's beauty, or the love they have in them, is inherent. Right? It is what it is. And with flowers, right, what do we tend to do? Roses. I think about Valentine's Day. We give a dozen roses to the person we love. What does it take to give those people a dozen roses? You've got to kill the rose. <laughs> right? We cut it off from its source, and we put it, in, put it in a vase. We contain it. We package it up. And it has a shelf life from that point on. It's only going to last uh, so long. And so, and in some ways, what can happen with romantic love or the way we idealize it more accurately is when we pick someone or let someone pick us and put us in water, right? Finding that romantic love that we all want. Uh, if we're not careful, we're only going to have so much shelf life. What I would suggest, and I do in this haiku, is that real romantic love is based in allowing each other's roses to stay in the ground and to keep growing. Now, let me, let me uh, give you some background on this. Uh, a few years ago, but right when I was really starting to consider getting back into writing, and uh, I had given up on poetry in eighth grade because I had a pretty traumatic experience in eighth grade, somebody reading a love poem of mine to my entire class, and I kind of stopped after that. But I was, I was thinking a few years ago, as I was really going through some really profound changes in my life, of getting back into writing poetry, and I was walking from my house to a coffee shop to work on some early stages of my book. And I saw this rose behind this, behind this iron gate. There was this little kind of foyer and uh, outdoors, and there was this rose behind it, about 10 feet away from the sidewalk. And it was gorgeous. I mean, just popped. This red rose popping against the, the, the white framework of the house and the, and the sidewalk. I was stunned by it, and I, I, was, I found myself looking at it wanting to get a close look at it, but I couldn't because, of course, there was a gate in the way. And I felt really disappointed. I was like, oh, man, that's a beautiful flower. I would really like to go take a look at that. And so I went on my way, and I got to the coffee shop, and I was working on my book, and I kept coming back to that rose in my mind. And I had this realization of, well, that rose doesn't get any more beautiful inherently if I'm able to get close to look at it. The only thing changes is I get a closer look. But when I'm not around, it's still the same beautiful rose. It's just my perspective on it changes. My access to it is what's limited. And that got my imagination going. And it led to this larger realization about roses. And I would say, for me at least, with people. When it came to romantic love for a lot of my life prior to then, I realized that I tended to treat people like some people treat roses. <laughs> I wanted to pick them. I wanted to have love for myself from them. They were objects of my affection, people. And I wanted to pick them and keep them for myself. I wanted their beauty. I wanted their affection. I wanted their love for me. But oftentimes, in the process of taking that, 
I was really taking away the essence or the roots of what I loved about that person in the first place because I wanted to control it. I was always fearful of losing it. I was one of those people that really wanted relationships. And then when I was in one, was so terrified it was going to go away. And of course, what happens when you do that, eventually it goes away, <laughs> right? Because the person on the other end just can't take it anymore. And much like roses need to be left in the ground to grow and become all they can be, people need to be as well, right? They can't be controlled. They can't be taken there. And their love can't be held hostage. And so I got really thinking about this and I sat down that day and I tried to write a poem about what I was feeling about roses and it didn't quite go so well. But so I then pivoted over into a short story that I called The Rose Still Stands. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about that. I'm not going to tell you how the story ends, but I want to set up the, the story for you so you can hear it. The Rose Still Stands, a short story that I wrote, and it takes place in rural Japan. And kind of in an undetermined time in the past. I just had the, the visual of, of having three main characters. A grandfather whose name was Hideo. And he has two grandsons. Chuichi is seven and Mitsuo is 15. And they live out in a pretty rural area. But Hideo is a fantastic gardener. And, and in, their, in their home, this very simple home with a large courtyard, Hideo loves to grow all different types of plants and flowers of all different types, colors, different scents, different looks. He loves to do this. His grandson's not quite as interested in it as him. But every day, Chuichi and Mitsuo, part of their job was to get up and go down to the river to catch, to fetch water, to bring that back. And in the middle of winter, one year, when nothing is growing, Chuichi and Mitsuo are walking down the path about a mile to their to the to the creek when they come across on the side of the road, a rose, a very large one, one that should only be growing in the summer, but is actually growing and thriving in winter and is so bright that it catches their attention. And they both know it's not supposed to be there. They have no idea what to do with it. Chuichi, the youngest, is really fascinated by it and he comes up close to it and he looks at it, but he won't touch it. It's so mysterious and beautiful. Mitsuo, on the other hand, wants to pick it. It's beautiful. He wants to pull it out of the ground. But Chuichi begs him not to do it. He says, no, he can't do it. And then finally, of course, what kids do, they go to the adult for arbitration. <laughs> so they run home to get their grandfather, Hideo, and they bring Hideo, a very bemused Hideo, out to the spot in the road. But when they get out there, the rose is gone. And they look around, and Chuichi is confused, and Mitsuo is angry, and then they notice about 100 feet down the road and further off the path this time, there's the rose. It's in a different place. It's moved somewhere. And so they get up close to it and they take a very close look. And they notice that the weather doesn't seem to diminish it. The ice isn't freezing it. It doesn't seem weak. It seems vibrant and strong. And they stay until dusk and it, it still shines at night. And they're amazed by this. And then Hideo, much to Mitsuo's consternation, says, you need to leave this rose alone. And he says, why? And Hideo says, quote, the bloom is what you see, grandson, but the roots and stem and thorns are what give it life and protect it from harm. Remove it from its roots and stem and it will die. So they leave it alone, but the story doesn't end there. Mitsuo 
is not happy with this, the 15-year-old. And so he begins to plot in his mind a way that he can capture this rose, find it, and make it his own. He doesn't like that it keeps disappearing and he wants to hold on to it. And so he hatches a plan to make out away from the house a small little greenhouse that he can pull this thing out of the ground somehow without cutting its stem, take it there, and he can keep it contained inside this greenhouse so it can't just disappear and go somewhere else. So he steadily withdraws away from his brother and from his grandfather, obsessing about this rose, and he does that. Meanwhile, every day, Chuichi and his grandfather go out and they find wherever the rose is that day. And Chuichi learns about it, and he learns from his grandfather, who knows a lot about gardening and making plants grow and taking care of them. And grandfather shares all these types of wisdom with him. They theorize about why the rose appears and reappears randomly, but Hideo simply tells Chuichi it's simply its nature. And that's a nature that can't be denied or controlled. And so, meanwhile, long story short, this goes on for quite some time, and Mitsuo becomes more and more obsessed with getting this rose. He won't ask Hideo for advice on how best to take care of this rose once he captures it, because, of course, if he asks, then Grandfather's going to know something's up. So he has to do this all on his own. So finally the day comes, and he gets up very early in the morning, Mitsuo does, and he takes all the tools that he's got, everything he needs, and he sneaks off. He finds the rose far off the path from where it usually is. And when he takes his trowel to dig into the soil, it breaks off. The soil won't give. And Mitsuo becomes angry. He can't pull this thing out of the ground. He begins to yank on it. He begins to scramble with his hands to try and pull it out of the ground. Anything he could think of. And he gets so angry and begins to yell and cry and get frustrated that he ends up drawing attention to himself. He's out in the early morning out in the woods, and a number of animals begin to move towards him, particularly predators wondering what's going on. And he finds himself in danger when he's surrounded by, his, by a pack of wolves. And in the end, it's his brother who heard him yelling, the seven-year-old Chuichi, who runs out and his grandfather behind him, and they manage to scare off the wolves. And so the jig is up, right? Masuo's caught. All the tools are there. It's clear what he's trying to do. And he breaks, and he finally tells his grandfather what he's been plotting for weeks. He wants to do this. And he's terrified that he's going to be in trouble. But his grandfather says to him, why don't you show me where this greenhouse is that you're making? And so the three of them walk to the greenhouse. And Hideo takes him aside and says, we're going to go ahead and move this greenhouse into the grounds of the house. So they all work together and pull it up and they take it over and they put it in this spot in the yard of the house. And they put all these beautiful rocks around it and Hideo finds the best soil uh, that they can use and puts it in there. And he corrects a lot of Mitsuo's errors in what he had been building. And then Hideo orders Mitsuo to take the roof off of the greenhouse. And they all wonder what's happening. And finally he tells them, this is the best we can do grandsons is we can make this beautiful spot where if that rose wants to appear here it can appear here and it will have the best spot in our garden and we will give it the best care we can for however long it chooses to stay now so that's what they do now i'm not going to i'm not going to give you 
the answer as to what everybody always asks when I present this story is, does the flower ever show up? Well, there's an answer to that, but I'm not going to tell you the, the, tell the answer. You'll have to read it someday. But what I will tell you is, is in the end, what happens is Mitsuo gets to, is introduced to a number of different flowers that he loves as much as this first one. And he begins to appreciate more of the plants that were already all around him in his garden. And his grandfather teaches him all the ways to care for these different types of flowers, much in the way we can care for different types of love. But we can create a very special space for romantic love that we can take care of for as long as we end up having it. And we can have it for short periods of time, long periods of time. And it can look a lot of different ways. But it has to be stayed to its roots. The romantic love that we want from somebody else has to come from them being free to disappear, <laughs> come back, stay as long as they want. And all we can do is give them the best space when they're with us to be the best of who they are. So with that, right, the way I kind of define romantic love goes in a little bit of a different direction. The best definition that I've seen somebody else give it comes from the famous book, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck back in 1978. And he talked about romantic love as, quote, the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own and another's spiritual growth. Two independent flowers attached to their own roots. Right. Bell Hooks, in her more recent book, All About Love, wrote, Love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely both of intention and an action. And then perhaps my favorite book on love, Marianne Williamson's Return to Love, where she talks about romantic love as really seeing the person the way God sees a person. She says, dear God, let me see this person through your eyes. And then she says, we are asking to see as God sees, think as God thinks, love as God loves. We are asking for help in seeing someone's true innocence. That's beautiful because that's not about possession. Right? So often we seem to, because I think of a lot of the messaging that we get, the fantasy island bachelorette kind of thing, is that romantic love is something to be won, something to be grabbed, something to be dug out of the ground, something to be protected at all costs, and something that we really need to get at all costs. Now, if you think about it, in romantic movies, romantic comedies, for example. There's always antagonists and protagonists, but really in the big thing, when the, when the story's about somebody finding love at the end, the true antagonist of that story is the chance of not finding love. Makes, makes the not getting romantic love an enemy. And of course then, by extension, romantic love, the achieving of it, is the hero. Right? So if you get romantic love, you win. If you don't get romantic love, you lose. And that fear that I've experienced in my life multiple times of, of maybe not finding romantic love or, then, or having it and then losing it can lead us to maybe do a lot of things that you know, really aren't in us to try to keep it. And I always think of the, uh, the Julia Roberts and Richard Gere film Runaway Bride with this. If you haven't seen that... Uh, in the story, Julia Roberts is playing a woman who's about to get married, and she's been engaged three times before, and she's run away, 
every single time. And Richard Gere is trying to figure out in the story, what, what, why does she keep running away from all of this? What is, what's the problem? And he narrows it down to the fact that he learns that Julia Roberts, in every single engagement she was in, when her fiancé asked her how she liked her eggs for breakfast, how she liked them cooked, she went with whatever they liked. She didn't know the way she liked her own eggs to be cooked. And so we can do that. And right, the idea is we can become what we think we need somebody else, uh, what somebody else needs us to be in order to hold on to that romantic love. But of course, then it's simply becoming inauthentic and it won't last. What I would suggest, and this is kind of tough, particularly at Valentine's Day when, when you know, there's so many feelings about are you, are being with somebody for Valentine's Day or not with somebody for Valentine's Day. It's the idea of do I have it? Yes or no. And if I have it, will I lose it? If I don't have it, will I ever get it? It's a lose-lose proposition either way. Because much like that rose, if that's how, you're, if that's how we're viewing love is that way. We're essentially cutting that rose and it's got only a certain amount of shelf life. Romantic love, like any other kind of love, it seems to me, has to be extending and coming out from two individual whole people, fully rooted in who they are, fully able to be who they are, who are making those choices together every single day to have that romantic connection. I think it's difficult to hear, but I think it's important to say that romantic love certainly isn't nothing. But it also doesn't have to mean everything. The best romantic love involves love of self, which we talked about last week. The best romantic love includes huge doses of friendship. Romantic love requires community for support. It's not always about the other person having to be the end-all, be-all person of support in every single situation. It's an everyday thing. To me, really, the only areas or the only things we have to ask ourselves every day about romantic love, particularly if we have a partner, is really three things. Do I love this person as they are today? Do I want to do the work with this person today that's required for this romantic relationship? And can I abide today any change that happens with this person? If the answer is yes to all three of those, then you're pretty good shape. And then you get to ask it again tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Just a couple days ago, I had a friend who shared one of the most honest things I've ever heard about, about this. And uh, she's been married 24 years, happily. And she floors friends of hers and people she knows when she tells them, you know, I've been happily married for 24 years. But I don't know if we'll stay married. And everybody looks at her like, wait, what? <laughs> and the reason why is because this friend lives her relationship and with her husband, and he does as well, on that day-to-day basis around those three questions, generally speaking. And I don't know about you, but that is not Fantasy Island. That is not The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. And none of this really is. And bringing it back to the story maybe you figured it out. Mitsuo was me. I was Mitsuo for a long time. And I don't want to, Mitsuo was on Fantasy Island, right? At all costs, he wanted that rose. And I didn't want to be Mitsuo anymore. And so I wanted to get off that island in 
so I voted myself off. And I have a better idea now of what romantic love is, at least for me. And I know better what it is outside of romantic love. And all I can do for the types of love that I have in my life, romantic included, is keep a wonderful space for it, like Mitsuo and Hideo and Shuichi did. For it to come and stay with me when it does, for as long as it chooses. And I'll get to revel in it every single day, every single moment that I have it. And I will take the best care of it that I can while I have it. And I can certainly hope that it stays, but not at the expense of loving it in the moment. Loving it in the moment is where it's always going to be if it's going to last. That's reality island. And that's really where I want to dwell nowadays. Romantic love is much more beautiful and stronger there than it is on Fantasy Island. Woo! Okay. Well, I just ran right through on all that one. And so if you're having Valentine's Day celebrations this week, revel in them. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy what you have. And if you don't have a significant other or romantic love in your life, there's plenty of other life and love to choose from this week and to celebrate. And... I'm always up for good reminders that love really matters in the world and love matters in our relationships. And so I hope you find the love that you can celebrate this week. And next week we'll talk about friendship. So that's it for this week on this show is all about you. Uh, Come back next week and we'll talk about the rock of friendship. And until then, everyone, chins up. See you next week. 